Welcome to The Story Tinker, a place for in-depth analysis of stories, including Midnight Poppyland, Purple Hyacinth, and more. Co-hosted by sharp, witty, and dare I say, thirsty fans, we dive deep into every episode, analyzing character, relationship development, and plot theories. You can follow The Story Tinker on all podcast platforms and videos of most episodes on YouTube. You can also follow The Story Tinker on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like weekly bonus content, sneak peeks, and more, you can support The Story Tinker on Patreon. Thanks for listening to The Story Tinker, and let's get started. Okay, hi everyone, and welcome to episode 81, which is called Willing Witness. And uh, we have Poot Whoops and Lilia today. So if you guys want to say hi, and say hi to everybody. Hello. Hi, uh, so my name is Lilia. I am 25. I am from Ontario, Canada. Um, I've been reading Purple Hyacinth since it was on Discover, and I've been reading Webtoons for, I guess, since 2016. Yeah, nice to um, nice to be here. Uh, hi, I'm Food. I've been here a couple times now. I've been reading Purple Hyacinth for almost two years now, and um, I spend a lot of my time on the Purple Hyacinth Discord. Yep, I'm putting together great server events like one we're having now. <laughs> so thank you for all your dedication and work. Oh, thank you for having us. <laughs> My pleasure. Okay, so um, what happened last episode was, you know, so just a quick summary. She walked into the station, everyone's like, uh, okay, this girl's shady. And um, she gets interrogated and um, Herman says he wants to have someone watch her at all times. She gets walked home by... I forgot the guy's name uh blonde person <laughs> Andrew no forgot and um and I guess who shows up at her house Kieran and he tells her and this is what we start out with I have what you need to prove uh Sake's guilt in Chow's case and yeah <laughs> look at mighty fun <laughs> so and then we cut to Lauren being all sneaky at night and it's very funny like so Fism and Aph have this very I can create a lot of comedy and they're like over the top motions because she like she's looking like a little bit like a samurai which you remember when they were on the rooftop you know she has this like hood on she fooshes it on and she's wearing a trench coat which is like the uh, epitome of like shadiness <laughs> you know spy thing and she you know looks out the window and there she is hopping from rooftop to rooftop again okay it's very comedic like you see them we all the way in the very like first couple of episodes when Lauren is chasing after Kieran, they're also like zooming along on the roof and they're shadow. They're like, they're streaks. You can't even see them. <laughs> it's just very funny. You know, they have this like supernatural speed. <laughs> yeah, it's like Ninja Lauren making the return. <laughs> I also just, I love the architecture like behind them. It's um, really establishes the world it's a bit of medieval a bit of Victorian I just really want to live in Artalis <laughs> I mean, actually yeah, I there, there's a movie for you <laughs> have you seen Paris and Midnight but, no, I think it's, it's a Woody Allen movie I don't think I have yeah I think it is so it's um, basically about a guy who loves the 1920s and he like he just lusts after that time where he thinks that's amazing he loves it and then he ends up going back to the 1920s when he's in the 1920s he meets this girl who's from that time period and she loves the 1860s and she's dying to go to the 1860s and she falls in love with him or sorry he falls in love with her 
and she ends up they end up both going back to the 1860s and she wants to stay there she's like i love this time period i want to stay in the 1860s and then he basically his the whole epiphany of the movie is like he realizes that you won't necessarily be happier in a different time period um and he just goes back to his present i think but um but yeah but i totally get it because i'm a big fan of the victorian time period and I probably wouldn't want to be a Victorian woman because I have a lot more rights right now, you know, and more opportunities, yeah. <laughs> but I totally get it. There's, there's a lot that I like about the time period too, you know, like the chivalry, I like the modesty, I'm very pro. <laughs> I grew up in a very, like I said, religious culture and very conservative. And there's, that's kind of one thing that I did retain. So I do like, I do like that. I, I guess I relate to it, how I grew up. So anywho. I mean, on one hand, almost no women's rights but on the other a pretty dress and the pretty <laughs> dress is a very tempting offer <laughs> the pretty dress win yeah <laughs> but then again it's only good if you're rich like it any time period like if you go backwards it's only gonna it's only good if you're rich right it's not like the men had a lot more opportunities also unless yeah. they were wealthy you know I mean, trust me, I read a lot. Basically, they had three choices in their life. If they were wealthy, they had three choices. If you were the oldest son, you inherited the estate. If not, you could be um, go into law or go into the military. That was it. Like, basically, like, you have nothing. You didn't have a lot of choice in your life. So, yeah, I'm happy we live in this time period. Yeah. <laughs> and the girls just become wives and mothers or nuns if they have the church around. Right. Oh, yeah. Sorry, the priesthood. They could also become a priest. But, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, so she's zooming along. What? Women receive, like, uh, a lot of women didn't receive a lot of education. Like, it it was seen as a, like, it's pointless to educate a woman in some time period, which, like, it's it's nonsense. Because a lot of, like, some of the brilliant minds in, like, math, for example, because I I managed a math, and a lot of the names that come up are, like, women. Or, like, sometimes um, you'd have the wife uh, do a lot of work, and then the husband would take all the credit. Yeah. Not fun. Yeah, no, it's amazing when you think about the level of like public education that you have these days. Like back then, like um, only if you were rich, you got educated, both men and women, and people were like not literate. Anywho, so soliloquy and the wonderfulness of passage of time. So we get to Lauren, you see, is hopping around to Kieran's apartment because we're back at number 16. Do we know his street name or just number um, 16? I don't think we know his street name, but I'm pretty sure we knew his um, apartment number at one point. Yeah, so it's it's number sixteen, like that. That we see it right here on the door. So, um, and it was actually Girl Wonder did a. Well, I shouldn't say this, but anyway, Girl Wonder did a trivia. And this was one of the questions. <laughs> what was the um? She did a Purple Hyacinth trivia episode, and one of the questions was, "What's his apartment number?" And I thought it was seventeen, so I was so close. <laughs> well, I thought it I was think six. we had that. Yeah, <laughs> oh, we had that in the in the in the trivia night we did. We did. Right Wait, did we do it for yeah, the Jeopardy? I think so. I think the uh, yeah. It might have been I in the cahoot. Maybe. Unsure. I don't remember that question, but it might have been there. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so she's at his house, and she's not supposed to be anywhere, right? Like we know she's supposed to be under lock and key and supervision, right? Mm-hmm. So she's taking a risk. Yeah. Um. When he says, like, officer, pleasure to meet, it's a pleasure to see you, um, it kind of just reminds me of Kieran in episode 50, when he lied about how he was excited to work with, like, Kim and Will in the people at the office. Um, 
I hope that he's more excited to see the other people now, like how he is happy to see her because he's not lying here. But I hope. <laughs> Mother, he really is happy to see her. I'm so excited. He this didn't know touched. she'd come. He's mildly surprised and happy mm-hmm. about it. Also, I don't know if you noticed, but his shirt looks really open to me here. Just wow. <laughs> I don't know if it's like his, my, my daughter who's nine, she would say he's flexing. <laughs> No. <laughs> and the high bun like don't get me started on the high bun he <laughs> oh, brought back the titty window <laughs> he has a towel around his neck which is like also a sign of like he's casual he's in his house he was I don't know washing his hair or something <laughs> but yeah she next time already opens up and he's like yeah I didn't know you'd come and then she gives him this deadpan face she's like this was your plan it was risky to leave my house what was so necessary that you absolutely had to drag me here Hope you didn't make me cross the whole 11th district for nothing. So, right. So we know that they're on opposite sides of 11, the mm-hmm. 11th district. Um, funny story. I think I told you this last time, mm-hmm. uh, but back on Purple Garden, um, F, F used to answer questions that she had, like, or that she got on the Purple Garden. Unfortunately, we don't have that anymore on the Fandom Scythe server. But one of the questions was like something about where Karen lived. And she said that Karen lived in the 11th district or precinct and that sent everyone into chaos because previously we all thought that he was in the sixth and so for like about two days there was just screaming over (laughs) where where was Karen's house (laughs) eventually we were able to settle on a spot and then F came in and she actually confirmed it and we basically peaked that day (laughs) next up (laughs) so I was just looking up all these months yeah um so when I went to France, France is divided into arrondissements, and I was wondering if this, since I know they're from Quebec, I was wondering if they had, they divide into districts because of that. And I do see, they, they, they do divide into districts, Quebec, but it's like Beauport, Charlesburg, La Cité, uh, Le Moulou, it's not numbered. But anyway, the, the concept of being divided, I guess, is maybe inspired by, by that. Artalis is also inspired off um, both Paris I believe it's Paris. It might just be overall France. Mm. Uh, it's inspired by both um, Paris and London. And we actually see part of that in the Great Chapel, um, which is a reference to White Chapel, which is where the Jack the Ripper murders were, if I'm not wrong. And then also the map, if you overlay a map of Hard Hollows over a map of London, you'll see that the river actually lines up in a certain spot. Um, it's like a zoomed in version of the map of London. We've got some bridges in the same spots. Sense. The architecture is definitely um, so a lot of the architecture, like the if you see if you go scroll back a little bit with the roof thing, that looks like some British architecture, like Shakespearean ish. The the houses that have that like the the panels, um, yeah. like the white with like the wooden beams across the front. So that's I mean I'm not super in architecture, like I'm not so knowledgeable. I did read one book about architecture, but I forgot everything I read. <laughs> there were some houses I don't remember. There were some buildings I don't remember which episode. It might have been like um, episode forty-four when Kim went. Uh, sorry, when Lauren went to Kim's house, and it looked a lot like sort of London. I'm not sure where these houses are in London, but it might be like downtown London. I don't know. <laughs> But like sort of like the square windows, the the little things, the parts of the 
stone that come out a bit. I'm not in the like fence. I have no idea how to describe this. <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah. very London-y. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I have to say having, having we spent like the whole, well, we spent like 10 days in Europe last winter for our 10 year anniversary. And my husband's actually from Holland. So like he's, he's from Europe. Europe. But anyway, I came back to America and I was like, we don't have any pretty buildings. Everything's so pretty over there. <laughs> Oh yeah, I felt that. Um, my dad's family is from Italy, and so we used to go visit like before pandemic. And the architecture is always so pretty there. We have none of that like over here. A few federal buildings and stuff like that, but yeah, nothing. <sighs> Anywho, let's not be fast. So, <laughs> Kieran is being very cute and adorable, and he has this. This is like a typical Kieran. You know, he does this over exaggerated stateliness, which is his signature I don't know I guess we could sit and analyze why maybe you could say like he wants to maybe because he's naturally a gentleman or you could say that because of his profession because of what he does he wants to kind of be the opposite of that and be as civilized and refined as he can be but he bows and he says well of course not please step inside my humble abode (laughs) just sweet and she comes in and then he's like, would you like some refreshments, water, tea, maybe? I mean, he's being extremely hospitable. And I think I think some of it is like a little bit of snarkiness, but I do think some of it is genuine. I think he's happy to see here, happy to have a friendly face because we know he doesn't really have friends and he's probably feeling lonely. Um, so this is like, Lauren's kind of like his only friend that we know of. So he's probably happy to have a friendly face in his house. And like, she's the only person who's been to his apartment, I think, because uh, he said, like, in episode 36, I believe, like, 37, no one else has been here before, but now he's inviting her back, like, that, that was sweet. <laughs> um, when Lauren comes inside, it almost sort of seems like she hesitates for a moment, like, there's a panel of her just standing there, and then she walks in. Um, yeah, she starts looking around, and, um, like, I actually was talking uh, to Chris about this before the, uh, the podcast but um like compare what she did to uh kim in episode 63 where she comes in she throws her jacket on the sofa she's like home sweet home and then she makes herself comfortable and then you have lauren who keeps her jacket on she's like make this quick like i don't want to be here longer than i have to like a huge contrast between the two and i understand why lauren would do that but it's just yeah i thought the the contrast would be interesting to point out um it's also uh the lighting is a lot colder in this scene than it is in that scene. And um, to be fair, this is at nighttime and Kieran doesn't have, it seems, so much good lighting, but um, it's just the scene gives up a lot more colder vibes than uh, when Kim went over to Will's house because at Will's house, the lighting's much warmer, it's um, more comforting. It's also, the house is less bare as well, but then again, Kieran doesn't have as much money as um will and uh, something also will's in his parents home right and his parents have this whole status thing going on and appearances to maintain and i don't think kieran would even be interested in that you know i don't think it sounds like he has enough money at least from what he says so he seems satisfied with what he has i think he's you know he doesn't need much space and he just wants to have a place that is has his books probably you know like a safe place Mm -hmm. to be i don't think he's into like the posturing that will's parents are or, you know, even if it's not posturing, like they come from money and it's a long line of money and that's just the standard in, in their family. 
I just noticed something um, in the panel where Karen's at his stove and Lauren's approaching the, um, the table. There are two types of chairs there. We see a stool and we see an actual chair. And it kind of makes me think that the re- that even though the table can seat two people and he only has one chair, it's sort of just like he lives alone. That's just another reminder that he, he lives alone. There's, he doesn't have a proper second chair for someone else at that table. <laughs> oh, I did not notice that. So he probably grabbed the chair that's in the drawing room, I would say. I'd rather that chair breaks, though. That chair can (laughs) burn. Use it as firewood. Well, now that he moved it, we can maybe take a look at what's on (laughs) the table. So she she decides, you know, she says, coffee black, a gallon, please, right? Because clearly she doesn't sleep enough. And he's like, "Uh uh-huh, sure, but I think the news I have will be enough to keep you awake. It's cute. He's laughing. Like, they, you know, it's a jovial relationship, and he's He's getting her stuff. Um, I think this is very healthy. You know, this is like a normal, healthy encounter. I mean, it isn't a normal, healthy encounter, really, because it's like a whole detective thing. But that aside, like they're having a normal encounter. And yeah, and she says, like, well, we should make this quick. I have to go back before they notice I'm gone. So maybe not the most normal. And she says, so earlier today, you said you found a witness. And his table is filled with this, like, little, little lamp on the table. And it's filled with, it's scattered with, like, books and papers and files <laughs> so yeah so this is probably all the stuff that he wants to show her so he says after hearing about your little misadventures with our good friend's sake i couldn't resist the temptation to look into chow's case file and he's preparing coffee for her meanwhile the way it were a psych warned out at a suspicion was actually quite clever and you see an image of him playing um gambling or playing cards with um two other gentlemen <laughs> he's looking very sullen in that picture by the way and he says, right after the poker game, he visited his neighbor to have a beer with him purposefully to be seen at home at night. Then he snuck out of the apartment to murder Chow and went straight to Maria's after to hide the murder weapon. And, you know, you see an image of him going out of the apartment and, and a knife, a bloody knife. And she says, correct. And he says, I read the transcripts too. You really did lose it, officer. And your hair trigger temper hasn't changed much since. And he's smiling and laughing at that. <laughs> yeah, it almost, it almost reminds me of the old kind of their old moon days where they could joke around without like having to walk on eggshells. Yeah, and it's a pretty good observation about her. <laughs> he's yeah, easily I'm, he's frustrated. I'm a bit unsure. Uh, how did Karen come across this information? Did he look through like a PS case or did he look through just the police transcript? Because if it was just the police transcript, then he shouldn't have known most of this. <laughs> Unless he made a lot of assuming. And a lot of guesses and leaps. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. I think the, the part about the visiting the neighbor, that was probably in the police files, right? Because yeah. that's the alibi. And then sneaking out. And yeah, the next part seemed, I guess, like his deductions. So he also has some, you know, detective skills like Lauren. <laughs> Presumably. Like, I don't I don't think that PS would keep files like that, you know? Like, oh, this is how Kevin, you know, he murdered someone. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how easily they be found. They have, there was a Harvey file, but I'm not sure how, where they're stored or how, yeah. again, how easily they can be found and accessed by people like him. Like, you think it, it would be in their best interest to get rid of that stuff because, you know, it could get tracked. But yeah, where did that Harvey file go? It seems very secretive. So I'm surprised they keep that stuff like written down, you know, especially yeah. the, the links that they take to like disguise their identities and not know each other. But anyway, Lauren, you know, she has this 
intense face. She always has an intense face <laughs> when she hears that. She's like, yeah, you know, she acknowledges that she has a hair trigger temper. And then, you know, Kieran says, but with an ability like yours, it would have driven anyone to the edge. And the look that he has on his face is pretty serious. You know, he's not joking around and he often jokes, right? He often uses humor and sarcasm, but here he's, he's being serious. He's really addressing her seriously and, you know, like giving her validation that she, her emotional experience was valid, which is a very affirming thing of him to do. Yeah, I really appreciated that. Like, you know, he's willing to see things from her perspective. Like, he might not agree with what she did, but at least he's like, I don't know, willing to sympathize. I don't know. Yeah, I definitely have to agree with you. Like, I think Kieran kind of wonders what it would be like if he had her ability as well and like what he would be able to catch on his own. Um, it kind of, I do hope we get to see Lauren's ability a bit more in coming episodes because I think that uh, her usage of it has gone down a bit, especially now that they're not doing moon missions anymore. But then again, the lie was most important during the McTrevor case and that's where they got the most use out of it after that's been kind of dormant I'd say so I do hope we get more situations in the future where she gets to use her ability um I think that's one of my smaller critiques of PH is that I feel like there's a lot of potential to be used with her ability especially since of how unique it is but um there aren't many situations where she really gets to anymore and this is random but it looks like something through Karen's window is reflecting, like lighting him. And on his, or on the left side of the panel, it kind of looks like the silhouette of a ship, maybe yes. carrying in something like nitroglycerin. Hmm. Oh my gosh, like the, the imported weapons. Yeah. It kind of <laughs> looks like a ship. I can't really tell. <laughs> Yeah, there's something shining through Kieran's window reflecting onto him. I thought that was a pier. Oh, yeah, it could be the pier. I mean, he's right on the water, but he's not near the docks, which is weird. And that's supposed to be, like, the poorer part of the district. But, I mean, to me, it sounds like it should be more expensive than, the, like, to have that that kind of view. But is it on the poorer side of town, like, or near pier? I wasn't aware of that. I mean, we're assuming it is because like that's I guess where the new money people live like not but the richer people like I guess where Lauren lives since she's on the other side of the district she's with the I think I think I've said she's near the night Nightingale Park if that's what it's called yeah which is like Lauren's up the north, north side mm-hmm. um something I think okay so I think for newer people honestly I would expect them more around the first precinct like I don't know something about Allendale kind of just gives me like younger hipper people vibes but I think Kieran where Kieran lives is actually would be one of the cheaper properties of the 11th precinct because although the 11th precinct is pretty wealthy Kim doesn't appear to be that wealthy so it's probably a mix of upper class and middle class people and then the other districts in the area so like um, 12, 13, and 1 those are the richer ones. Again, uh, the ta- the most wealthy people in our tallest aren't going to like compl- aren't going to be the entire populations of these four districts. But so it's probably a mix of upper class and middle class, with certain areas of each precinct being more 
dedicated to richer people like we see with Lauren and Will's families if that makes sense and then I would guess that where Kieran lives is one of the the properties aren't worth as much as they would be where Lauren is again because it's more middle class people living in that area and even though it is a waterfront property because it's right on the river it is on the border of the sixth precinct and some of the poor precincts and the precincts on the south shore so people if you have money you would probably want to invest in a property that isn't very close to whom you consider to be like the plebeians mm-hmm. and it might be seen as safer because i guess crime in great chapel is pretty bad you would assume but yeah. also kieran maybe he chose that specific location because it's closer to i guess he is from great chapel i think i've mentioned that so Maybe he chose to be closer to where his old neighborhood was. But also not in the, his old neighborhood, which I totally understand. Like, he probably doesn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. And also, the fandom site mainly operates um, out of the South Shore, I believe. Like, we got um, Grey Chapel down there. Or, we got Grey Chapel and uh, the Grim Goblin down in the South Shore. So... It makes sense that Kieran would want to live near a place where he works and uh, his apartment is like right in between the 11th precinct and uh, some PS spaces which is very convenient for him. Yeah, <laughs> it's just separated by the bridge. Mm-hmm. I get the sense at least that he, he wants to in his own private life in his home to be removed from his work so he's not in Great Chapel directly because probably it's also depressing for him honestly to be reminded of where he grew up and how he grew up. So I I feel like he chose a place that's at least removed from it, so he has that peace and quiet in his home. Mm-hmm. Right. Also, his home does seem very peaceful. You also see, by the way, he invested in his home. Like his home looks nice. Like it's not, it's not bare. It's not like it has decent furniture. He has rugs, and it looks like homey. It's he's yeah. made it a nice place for himself. Like he has furniture. He has cook, you know, cooking ware. He's not like just living there, sleeping on the floor on a mattress or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I said it was bare earlier, I meant like compared to Will's house, uh, that it's more like scaled down in extravagance. Bare was probably not the best word to use then. <laughs> it's, it's simpler, but also very so like, um, what's the right word? Comforting, I guess. Homey, like you said. I'm ready to move in with Kieran, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> also, he has a lot of books. I am so yeah we books are my favorite anyway as soon as I see them so basically like if I would ever I'm I'm not single right obviously I've been married for like 11 years but if I would ever meet somebody and they didn't have books that would be like an instant no <laughs> sorry <laughs> so, the same for me. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah so Kieran is so far on the checklist I mean assassin maybe <laughs> but <laughs> yeah so anyway Lauren says here, um, she says, we're, you know, going back to the, the hair trigger temper, she says, still not an excuse to slam people into walls, though. So she has that self-awareness, right? That what she did was not really smart. I mean, in terms of like definitely getting more information out of Seagull, we've mentioned this before, like she could have gotten a lot more information if she would have not had lost her temper and mm-hmm. slammed them into the wall because that was the end. Like not only was her, her investigation of state ended then, but her whole you know, career as a, as a detective also. So it was really uh, not a very wise decision or not even, I don't think it was a decision. I think it, her emotions overcame her. And then 
Kieran, Kieran's response is very crucial because he says, yeah, it is not. I should know. And he's looking down and away from her. And we're pretty sure he's thinking about how he lost his cool and his temper and went insane after Lauren called him a monster in episode 43. Yeah. Um, I think the it's still not an excuse to slam people into walls, though. It's kind of sort of like... Um, it kind of reminds me how like in sort of like in the US uh, even if you're guilty you still get some basic rights and you still like get some like respect and protection um, from harm until like I don't know you're in jail but public opinion though yeah um, and I don't know this is kind of just another analogy I have in my head I've seen people use it a few times in the past where it's like um, even if you even if you have like bad mental health it's still not an excuse to be a bad person to others so you can't really use it as like she said you can't really use um, things like these as an excuse to be a bad person and her slamming sake into a ball isn't really a great thing to do like even if he is guilty I would argue that he doesn't really he should Lauren shouldn't have slammed him into a wall even if she knew he was uh, he was guilty if that makes sense it's uh, not very well yeah, it does. So it's not usually the how you go about proving somebody's guilt like she would not, not get anything out of it but I guess she her emotions took over that moment and uh she wasn't thinking clearly yeah, in a, in a civilized, law-bound society, you try to not go by your emotions. You go by the rules, right? And let that govern your behavior. So, yeah, and also he wasn't proven guilty at all there. So, you know, her, her behavior was completely uncomfortable. But anyway, so that's a pivotal moment where, you know, Kieran is basically admitting his guilt. And, his, and he didn't say, I'm sorry. He's not saying, I'm sorry in this situation. But he's basically saying, I was wrong to do what I did you know, in a backhanded way. So that's a big step. And that's a, that's a healthy step because, you know, when people do things wrong, right, that's human, that's normal, especially like for such a background that he has, obviously, like he's clearly messed up and people who come from abusive situations obviously don't have the same baseline that people who didn't come from that situation have. And they can do things that are not that great, but here he's taking responsibility for what he did and admitting that what he did was wrong. And that's, that's crucial. And I really think they should take it a step further and actually talk about it. Like, I get that he didn't bring it up when he was apologizing back in 59 because, like, she was distressed back then thinking about, like, the bombing and all. But, uh, so it wouldn't have been a good time to, like, talk about it. So he just, like, glossed over it. But it still hasn't brought up afterwards. Like, I think at some point they're going to have to talk about it because it's, like, it's still, like, lingering. It's still there. Like, it's not going to go anywhere until they properly address it, I think. Yeah, I can't remember if Lauren has apologized to him for calling him a monster. Nope. But I do hope she does at some point because I do think she was in the wrong when she did that. And although what Karen did was definitely worse, um, I think she should still apologize because like calling someone a monster is pretty serious, especially when it is like a very serious topic for them and so I'm still waiting for Lauren to apologize to Kieran after that 
because he's done it like two times now. I don't, yeah, I don't apologies overdue, honestly. <laughs> she needs to apologize. I don't think she needs to apologize. I, I don't think so because I think that in many ways, Lauren Kieran is a monster. But I think that as their relationship progresses and she understands him more, I think she'll understand how much her words hurt him. And I think that if they have a discussion about it, which I hope they will, she'll say, hey, Lauren Kieran, you know, I don't think you're a monster. And that will be very healing and redemptive for him to hear. So I'm hoping that things, something like that will happen. But I don't think that they had enough of a relationship at that point for her to need to apologize for that. You know, Kieran is an assassin. He did just murder all those people without telling her. And I understand that, you know, and she was distrustful of him to begin with. Like she always thought of him as a monster and she just started to get to know him. So I don't think that, you know, she had, he had a right to expect anything else of her really. Yeah, uh, we definitely see Kieran um, not lose his cool when people call him a monster uh, in like 40, in episodes before, like right at the beginning, Florent called him a monster at some point and he was just completely chill but I still think she should have she should apologize for that because yeah he has killed people um yeah he is like technically a terrible person a lot of it is he's forced to do it and Lauren should probably know this like in the phantom scythe it is do this or you die it's a terrorist and radical organization it's a basic assumption that uh we probably that we already recognized before um before sandman told her and so lauren should already know that in the phantom scythe the stakes are very high and those stakes are your life and for kieran it just it makes sense for him to do the job because if he doesn't do the job, then he'll be killed and then someone else will step in for him. So it's like the trolley problem, but, and you're, you're, the tro- you're um, driving the trolley. You can either choose to die yourself, so kill one person, or you can choose to kill how many other people and save your, and save your own life. However, there is a trolley behind you and that will be your replacement if you go to, if you decide to um, kill yourself instead. So regardless, if, so if like Kieran kills um, himself, then it's just going to be another number into, into the pile of people who are dead. Um, the people he would have killed are going to be dead anyway. So there's no point in him removing himself from the equation especially right. since he's such a powerful player at this point um he has the ability to take down the phantom side so just strategically if he wants to save more lives then he has to kill the people now if that makes yeah. any sense i'm sure it doesn't I'm yeah so like sorry. a moral dilemma yeah it does make sense it definitely does uh, it's, yeah. It's like very gray, gray morals, but like it's he's sacrificing a few for like a bigger cause, mm-hmm. and these people will be dead anyway. Like regardless yeah. of whether he told her or not, like she's not mad. This, I mean, technically by the, their deal, she was mad because he didn't tell her beforehand, not at the actual murders. I mean, she's upset at the actual murders, but uh, the only thing he did wrong technically by their deal is that he didn't tell her beforehand. 
I, I totally agree with I totally agree with what you're saying. And um, I think that this is also part of Lauren's growth as a as a person because she was there there's the whole element where he he expo- you know she was more sheltered as a as a wealthier person and he's telling her you know he's kind of waking her up and saying hey listen you know the poor people haven't been you know paying any attention to and maybe you can understand them a little bit more so there's that element of her waking up to that and then there's also she the whole moral div- boundary between good and evil that is also something that is opening up to her because you know she's like oh i'm a police officer i'm on the side of the right phantom side everyone the phantom side is terrible so she is this is something like she's learning as well and we as the characters the readers are also learning to have more complexity in our moral judgment but yeah but i totally i understand her her reaction and yeah you know what i wonder if there was an element of her that also deliberately threw that word in his face because it was the most painful thing she could think of to say that. Mm-hmm. um something i wrote a while back back on the old server was um it's want versus need um lauren doesn't actually need to have good morals to be a good person in society's eyes because she's already a police officer working to protect people the good morals she does have aren't out of necessity kieran on the other hand is basically viewed as the bottom of the bucket of society if he is to have hope in himself he needs to have good morals because occupation can't cover that for him so that's why Lauren has more sort of, I guess we consider villainy traits or sort of like an anti-hero, whereas Kieran's traits um, we see to be more like heroic and smiled upon, even though um, that was back in September. And right now I'm currently on the side that you can't really morally compare them yet or at all. You can't really say one is more morally worse than the other because both have gone through different experiences and both are faced with different moral challenges. So we don't know how Lauren would act in Kieran's shoes and we don't know how Kieran would act in Lauren's shoes and therefore we cannot compare them morally. Yeah, they're totally different circumstances. Good point. Yeah. Definitely. I have um, one of my husband's really good friends grew up in a very, very like crazy abusive household like to, to the extent that one of the parents accidentally killed one of his siblings because they were beating them so much that they they died just like torture like like the worst possible cases you could read about like just extreme extreme torture and um he grew up and he got married to this girl from a totally normal family like he grew up also super poor and um he married this girl from like a upper middle class family very normal healthy life family you know very comfortable and he basically they were in love in the beginning because they were kind of young and foolish in my opinion and they didn't realize that the difference of backgrounds would cause like a ton of ton of um strife in the relationship and anyway he um basically they had a lot of difficulties in their in their life together but this the husband would get very very triggered very easily and he was always you know he was the one in charge of the family's finances because the wife never expected to work because like she grew up in a soccer mom kind of house right and you know this was something that was like he was always, they were very poor and they were like, anyway, he was under a lot of stress and he, his reactions were like, when I would view them from the outside, you would be like, this guy is crazy. This guy is, he yells, he screams, he's extremely under pressure. And like, he was, you would, I would, I would call him emotionally abusive to his wife, but coming from where he came from, he never laid a hand on his wife and he was extremely good to his children. Like he, never he never hit his children and he actually was just a good dad like he never even yelled at his children he was like a good dad and it was incredible because I there were there were parts of me that like despised him because I was like you're just a nasty person to your wife but the other part of me recognized that 
the fact that he didn't touch his wife and the fact that he never, that he was a good dad was like a miracle considering how he was raised. And like for him to reach that level must've taken an incredible amount of like self-control and work on himself and changing. So it was just this very eye-opening experience to realize that, you know, you can't judge someone unless you've been in their shoes and the way that you were raised shapes you and you can't judge everyone with the same eye. And I feel like that's the same similar situation for Kieran and Lauren. Like this, they have totally different experiences and you, we can't view Kieran the way that we, you know, judge him the way that we would judge somebody who grew up normally with no crazy traumatic background. Um, I'm very sorry about the sibling. That's um, incredibly tragic. Uh, I, I don't know. Really like my sibling. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know his but, family, but he told us so his stories. I'm really sorry about that. It's horrible. Uh, it, we've talked about this a bit on the server about sort of Kieran and his reaction. And sort of like a lot of people see it as sort of not harming someone is kind of like the bare minimum of <laughs> being a good person like you don't you don't um physically assault someone that's just a basic thing of being a good person you don't cause harm to others and earlier I said how mental health isn't an excuse to be a bad person to people and I I still apply that to Lauren just because she knows that people are lying or um, and just because Kieran has gone through everything that he's gone through it's still not really an excuse for him to or for either of them to be bad people really it explains their actions let me just clarify that their actions are understandable and you understand where they're coming from and why they're doing what they're doing but it doesn't excuse what they're doing yeah I agree with that As, as we go through life like you understand that sometimes you have to be, be able to live with that with like the person what the person is doing is bad and you know maybe hope you hope in the future they'll be able to heal and, and fix it and correct it but you you know a little bit of understanding and forgiveness does come a long way but anyway but you also want to make sure you don't end up in like abusive relationship or something like that yeah because that's <laughs> another definitely. big element where people are like oh i know people like this who have stayed with someone way too long because because of that so it's hard it's not always easy right to Mm -hmm. be forgiving and be understanding but also not let yourself be abused anywho (laughs) so yeah so this is yeah real life issues coming up in the story but lauren has that you know um when the look that she gives him back you can deduce that she's thinking about it as well and, you know, Kieran goes on and he, um, he says, anyway, I've investigated Sake for the last few days for information on his past jobs. Turns out he has quite the record. It wasn't always the most stealthy hitman out there, which again, we're not surprised. Sake is kind of presented as a little bit of a bumbling person, not too bright. So not surprised about that. And he has a whole, you know, he's looking through his files and he says, whenever there was a witness, he'd kill them too, or at least threaten to do so. Again, classic behavior, you know, bad guy behavior. And she just sounds like him. So yeah, and she's like just sitting down now. 
And he says, in the file, I found all the names of the people brought in for interrogation. And the woman living right beside the crime scene, you never met her because of your little outburst. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. <laughs> reminding her of what she missed out on. And then you see an image of him with this cute little old lady. And you know he's visiting her at her house. He says, she swore up and down. She hadn't seen anything. So I paid her a little visit. You know, just to check if her version of the tale would still be the same now that Jake's death is all over the papers. And so Kieran's like going out of his way, right? He's been investigating for several days and he went to pay a visit. That man, I'm just saying he's doing something for her because he cares. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Um, something that's kind of funny is that uh, Fast Pass noticed a while back is that Ephemeries on Discord, her profile picture is currently the it's currently the little old lady and we had a dilemma a few weeks back where we were unsure if we could share a screenshot of something f said to like the um in a general chat room because technically it would be a fast fast spoiler (laughs) out of context but still one Uh, so cute the little grandma i was hoping oh i guess uh, sorry shouldn't talk about the next episode Uh, sorry okay sorry Lauren gets super excited you know her eyes go wide and she's like what and what did she say and he says she used to live right next to the alley where sake murdered chow she witnessed everything from her window but sake noticed and before she could tell anything to the cops or the phone he was pointing a knife at her throat so i guess he was fast at least (laughs) and she again lauren's just completely excited by this information she says she confessed to you and Kieran is so excited to say this. He said she's ready to speak in court with this big smile on his face. Well, reasonably big for him, I think. <laughs> oh, it's like it's great. They're sharing information, and he's like happy for her. You know, he's happy that he can help her and that she can, you know, prove something that she's been wanting to prove for a while. And like he's excited about it. It's so so nice to see that. Yeah, and like he totally didn't have to do this. Like it doesn't, in a way, it doesn't benefit him that much to look into this for her but he just you know he just had to go all out and uh, solve this case that I guess it's haunted her for a while I mean he, she doesn't know that but um it the, like the fact that she lost her uh, detective position over it it's I guess he could deduce that it um it matters a lot to her yeah, I love how Kieran's helping Lauren out, especially since he has access to files that she doesn't since like she's banned from the archives. And again, he has access to probably some PS insight. Again, though, I I hope we see Lauren able to fend for herself at some point because Mindy, I think I told you this the other day, but um, Kieran keeps saving Lauren. <laughs> he's, he's getting her out of a bunch of uh, sticky situations. And I'm hoping that Lauren is gonna be able to get herself out of those or start saving Kieran from sticky situations but he is a bit more qualified than she is and has more resources but we can hope and then uh something I don't know something that always kind of bothered me with the grandma is that she feels oh I love her because like queen energy for coming up but she feels a little bit like a deus ex machina to me and for people who don't know um, a deus ex machina I stole this definition from uh, Urban Dictionary it means literally God from the machine deus ex machina originally referred to the, 
Greek plays where the gods would be lowered onto the stage in order to provide a quick resolution to the story. Today, Deus Ex Machina refers to any improbable and or overly convenient character or mechanism that comes out of nowhere and saves the character from their doom. Right. So it gave me gave me a little bit of Deus Ex Machina vibes, but I kind of understand where it's coming from. Kind of like, girl, what were you doing? <laughs> so I think like I understand why she would like be afraid for her life, but and I guess like you would think that she would be that like if she came to the police about it, uh, they would protect her because she's a witness. But then again, the PS has infiltrated the police and stuff and then we can't really expect her to lay down her life to say it like we can't expect her to sacrifice and put at risk her own life to save others like I just don't think that's something we should be expecting of people but then again she is old and has lived a while and (laughs) might be ready to go (laughs) I don't know there's so many different ways they could approach this situation but yeah I'm like holding a knife to her throat like if I was in her place I would say whatever they want them to want me to say because you know I'd value my life over others yeah but she's also been gone for a year or sorry Sake's been gone for a year and although like um she didn't know that there was still like a period of time a big period of time where she could have come to the cops about it and so I'm a little sus but I also understand why she didn't tell them. She He might have threatened family or something. She might have grandkids or kids of her own. But we don't know that yet. So and we might never know. So it's just pure speculation. But and, yeah. Um, uh, if she's the only witness and somehow like he gets dragged into this again, like he's going to know it's her. And I guess that's what kind of, like that's the leverage he used against her. Is that, like you're the only witness. And if, uh, if this like gets brought up again, then I know it's you, and I could like send somebody to kill you or something. I mean, six dead now though, so. Yeah, but like, she's only coming forward after he dies. Ah, uh, true. And then he did a prompt. Like he, he's the prompt. Like, what would she have done if he hadn't come to her door? I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, she gives me, she gives me some Deus Ex Machina energy, which is something that I was a little surprised about because we don't usually get those in Purple Hyacinth. Well, I mean, personally, I'm super impressed by the, the amount of plot ties and mysteries they do. So I'm not surprised that there's one of those more yeah. simplistic explanations. I could never do this. This is not my thing. I could never <laughs> tie. To, I was thinking, I actually was thinking about it. Like, how would I go about planning it? And it's not, it's not my forte. Maybe if I tried very hard, but it wouldn't be as nice as this. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how everything connects. Yes, for sure. But Lauren is so excited by this that she like jumps up from her chair and she's like, what? And <laughs> Kieran has this cute little grin on his face. He's like, obviously I've asked her to pretend she never saw me. She just spontaneously decided to come clean. <laughs> it's really cute. And and Lauren is overwhelmed and she's she's speaking honestly. And she's like, Kieran, that's incredible. She calls him by his first name. Does she ever call him Kieran before this? Remember this? I don't, I don't I know. I feel like it's- so. She yeah. probably has it's a personal thing you know like it's like it's a it's a respectful thing right you know she's actually calling him by his name because they usually tease each other but you know that's it's a genuine reaction from her and you know she's she's so happy in the next statement she says if she's willing to change her statement that case could be reopened and she smiles she's happy she smiles but then the next panel she looks a little concerned and her smile like slips off her face and she says why why are you doing this 
that part broke my heart <laughs> that she's like doubting him even though like it from his perspective it, I mean for uh, I guess it just doesn't seem that he has something to gain of it out of it but still- yeah I think that's what she was also thinking like Kieran didn't have to do this um it was is it was a personal matter between her and sake he didn't have to step in and help her but he did and I you know she still probably sees him as like the purple hyacinth and um just that he would be doing this just out of generosity yeah yeah like it has nothing to do with loon or like their investigation so why why would he yeah and then the channel you know he takes a moment like he's contemplating before he answers and you know it probably is a little hurtful for him to hear that you know that she doesn't trust that he would do doing this just out of kindness and and then he says no particular reason it's a lie and Lauren Lauren sees that it's a lie and she squints but she chooses not to address this um and you know Kieran's not stupid right he he'll know he knows that she'll know it's a lie but I guess he doesn't want to think of anything else to say I don't know I guess um either so here's the thing here's the thing so either he you know he helped her out of the pure generosity of his heart which is what I think is true you could look at this in a, in a suspicious way, or you could see this as maybe Lauren sees in a suspicious way, because Lauren might be suspecting, remember, you know, especially after the, the carnival and with the lady saying that someone's going to come to betray you from close to you, she could be thinking, you know, okay, maybe this is some part of Kieran's machinations where he's going to betray me. I'm not sure if she's thinking that. Do you think she's thinking that? Um, yeah, I think she's still a little suspicious of him. I mean, again, he did. He did almost kill her, so I think it is justified for her to um, be suspicious. And he does have some secrets that she does not know about, and so. Um, yeah, like she she recently has been volunteering a lot more information about herself than he had. Like he hasn't, like this entire season. I think the only thing he said about himself was the, uh, in like in episode 68 where with the like he's like oh those kids I could have been one of them but other than that like I don't recall him ever bringing up anything about himself or his past yeah the hush. <laughs> he definitely has a bunch of skeletons in the closet that he is not telling her about despite her um showing some of hers <laughs> yeah she's been a lot more open there's still a lot of stuff that hasn't been said but she's been a lot more open than she was in season one mm-hmm I like how this a lot more is relative because it's like it's not a lot but, but yeah relative to to what she didn't say before yes <laughs> and he he's you know avoided as well like she turns away also she's not willing to press this further and pursue this he says I can help you but for this to work and he turns away and yes ostensibly he's looking at the coffee but like I think he also kind of wants to avoid eye contact with her and you know you'll have to be honest about what happened between you and sake and he you know, she says, I will, which is, it's nice. And he goes to get her coffee and he says, here's your coffee, gives it to her. And pivotal moment coming up. There's there's an image of the coffee cup and like she's blurred in the background. It's his hand offering her the coffee cup. And then it's her. You see now she's in focus and it's him. And they're just looking at each other. And it's a close-up of their faces. And it's just getting more intense and more intense. And then there's a cup. And their hands start touching on the cup. 
and there's a close-up of their fingers interlaced with each other and it's like then it just like zooms out and then it's like you see both of their eyes are like shocked and it kind of is like black and white and again there's a close-up of both of their faces and just their eyes looking at it looking at each other and most of us were like oh my god this is so romantic and then sadly their touch just reminded them of the um choking scene in episode 43 because this is what we're flashing back to kieran's crazed face and him slamming her against the wall and choking her lovely (laughs) yeah not the romantic moment we wanted is it the first time they've touched like physically i think so punching Uh, i don't know oh that's true i forgot about that well, I mean, she helped him. They both helped each other with their wounds. So, like, she dressed his back once, and no, he helped like her with since, her foot. Right, he wrapped up her foot once. Since, uh, oh, 43. like since, since episode forty-three. Yeah, I think that that might be the first time, at least like skin skin touching, not like through yeah. gloves or whatever. It's funny because I asked my sister to fast pass this episode, and I could see her getting baited by that. But she's like, "Oh, they're hand touching," and then like. oh my my god okay so my mom she came back from a trip and she was while she was she reads purple hyacinth i was able to get her into ph and uh while she was going through the episodes that she had missed uh because um when she got to this hand touch scene she literally turned over to me because she was reading on my phone and i was sitting right next to her she turned over to me and just was like what and she like showed me she showed me the panel and I was like yep that's like that's what happened while you were gone <laughs> and I might get I'm not sure if people are going to track me down for saying this <laughs> because it's a controversial shit but um it kind of reminds me of Raylo like the hand touch I'm do you watch Star Wars Mindy oh okay so there's a controversial pairing in the sequel trilogy of the Star Wars movies and uh, kind of soil, there's small spoilers, but they have like a hand touch scene where they just like <laughs> touch fingertips and that's what this reminded me of. <laughs> yeah, so um, I would I, say, is that, go ahead. Oh, sorry. So I, I was uh, thinking um, like the issue was not that their hands touched, but more rather than like the hand place, his hand placement on the mug is what reminded them of the, like it looks like choking part. That might be why. It's not the actual like physical touching itself, but the image that was projected. I mean, that was my thoughts when I was watching the, the stream. Is that just the way his hands looked, not the fact that like they touched yeah, that's, that's definitely true because, you know, when you're holding a mug and your neck, it's kind of the same shape, like sort of, you know, the cylinder. <laughs> um, so I guess like you, the the way your hand would be holding it is, this feels so weird. I'm talking about the way Kieran would hold the neck. Oh my God. <laughs> Anyways, the way that your hand would hold it is kind of similar. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, part of me thinks, yeah, that this is what that was the point of the scene rather than the the actual touching. I didn't even notice that at first. Like that was an amazing catch. Thank you. So their reaction afterwards 
it's pretty intense and it shows that the the level of emotional intensity that 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 this was and how much it means to both of them because she, you know she pulls the, the mug away and she's sitting there and she looks away and she's holding her neck and she, and, and <laughs> i just called it almost a little show with my son's name and kieran is um is grasping his wrist right his hand and he's looking down at his hand i mean this is pretty overt you know and then he looks down at his hand and what he sees is blood all over his hand and he hears the word monster and his reflection in the cup is you know him with his like beaming blue eyes and presumably it's in the panel from somewhere in 43 right or you know it's, it's a tortured image that's for sure uh, and 45 i think yeah okay and then it disappears and he grips his hand and you see that it's shaking like this and i the way I interpreted that was that he kind of hates himself for what he did mm-hmm. and he is just so angry at himself and he's just you know holding it tight like he wishes he hadn't done it and he wishes he hadn't been you, you know used that hand for that and he wishes he could control it and not have done that mm-hmm. um, Lauren is actually holding her neck she's touching her neck when uh, right after she gets the cup and she does this in episode 50 as well after they handshake she actually touches her neck which is to show her discomfort especially around him and how um the events of that episode are still weighing upon her um and she she does that a lot like whenever she's uncomfortable but i guess he might not know that and he might be assuming that she's i don't know reliving a flashback or something of what happened but she does. Oh. She tends to uh, touch her neck whenever she's uncomfortable. She's done it a few times since um, season one. One of our friends on the Discord um, pointed this out a while back. She's a brilliant artist and writer. Her Instagram is zoro.artsy. So go follow her. <laughs> I'm yes, just gonna, <laughs> she's so talented. I'm just going to give her a shout out that she probably doesn't want. Um, I'm sorry, Zoro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it out now. Sorry. But anyways, um, Zoro, she's a brilliant theorist. She pointed out how Kieran always, we see this in the next panel after that sequence, Kieran always coughs when he's uncomfortable. So he coughs right after that when he brings up the circus. And this just, I don't know, that's like a little um, habit of his. And it was like, wow, it's also such an amazing catch and so brilliant on the artist's part because, you know, the, art, the, the characters have their own little quirks and things. Like, just like real people. I will say, I actually love this whole thing. And, you know, the fact that the fact that they both get emotional about it and that it affects them, to me, you know, you don't get emotional about something you don't care about. Like, so if they had no relationship with each other, if they didn't care, if they didn't have any feelings, they wouldn't be feeling this. But, you know, they both care about each other and they care about the, uh, each other's opinion of, of the other person. So it's significant to them. And I think that this is a good sign because it shows that they have a relationship rather than being indifferent to each other. And mm-hmm. especially for Kieran, that Kieran feels regret for what he did and regrets that she calls him. He doesn't like that she calls him a monster. He wants her to think of him, to think well of him. So that's like, it's a very good thing to me in terms of like that their relationship is there. Mm-hmm. Like, even though the trauma is still there, like, I think they've made a lot of progress in the last few episodes, especially since, like, 68. Like, you could tell that her view of him is changing slowly, but she's getting there. Yeah, but they choose not to address it verbally. 
because he coughs right and he says so, so uh it's awkward he usually doesn't have this by the way he's never stuttered before or stammered he's always very confident and brazen but he does here so he was you know um taken off guard by this he says so when we went to the circus you mentioned having a little chat having had a little chat with Sake a few days before what exactly did he tell you and she doesn't look at him, but she says, we didn't talk about Chow's case then. But the night we infiltrated the restaurant, I overheard him telling Belladonna about it. And you have a flashback of Ninja Lauren running through the garden. I drugged, and Seik is saying, I drugged his ex-wife, got her print of a knife, and hid it in her bedroom after I was done. And he says, hmm. And Kieran's like, hmm, I see. That's going to be hard to prove now that he's dead. And Lauren says, even if the witness is willing to change her statement, we also need evidence to back it up. And she says, when I saved steak last year, I found a bottle of black market sedative on him. It's called Gentle Night. By the way, uh, Dylan Thomas has a poem, Do Not Go Gentle Onto That Night. So Gentle Night is, a, I think, uh, well, anyway, I mean, it, it's even if without the poem, it's a clear allusion to like sleeping, you know, <laughs> strong enough to put a horse to sleep. And Kira's like, yeah, I think I know that one. Would have knocked Maria out before she noticed the change in her stew seasoning. Isn't Maria the old lady? Or is Maria the child's wife? Is the yeah. ex-wife. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So she says, I wasn't able to submit it as evidence last year, but if Sake really has a record, maybe we can find other places where he used the same modus operandi and try to establish a correlation. It still wouldn't be enough, but it would be a start. And Kieran looks at her with this proud smile on his face and he says, it's your time to shine, detective. And that is so affirming because he's building her up and he's praising her for her he's praising her for her you know detective skills and he's calling her detective which means like he's giving her the title that she lost because he's saying you're worthy of that title so it's it's a beautiful moment in my opinion it is like it's now my new favorite nickname for her detective like trumps everything else (laughs) and like it's like it's it's an acknowledgement of her abilities and uh like you know she makes a great detective and like you know she's talking about all those issues that like all those hurdles that um they're facing with solving this case but he's like you know i know you can do it you're you're a great detective i mean not directly but that's what that feels like and he he called her officer at the beginning of the episode and that kind of just shows like the amount of change they've already sort of gone through in one episode and when kieran says yeah i think i know that one when after talking about the sedative it kind of makes me think that kieran that that sedative has been used on Kieran before. Like, oh. just a little <laughs> sus there. How do you know how effective it is, Kieran? Have you had to, um, have you like used it before? Is that what's happening? Because especially if Sake gets the sedative from the fandom scythe, then it, uh, did I say fandom scythe? Oh my God, phantom scythe. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> fandom. Um, if he gets, if Sake got the sedative from the, phantom scythe and then it might be a well-used sedative used in that group so it might have been used by kieran or kieran might have had to use that sedative on someone else foreshadowing (laughs) yeah and and the episode ends with lauren giving a little smile little grin happy that kieran praised her I'm it. so happy the episode ended on like a positive note despite that like flashback in the middle like at least something yeah and I think the authors think it's positive too because their little note says calm it down a plank of driftwood 
isn't enough to build the ship yet. And we're like, yes, it is. Just hand out to the plank. The top comment says a plank of driftwood isn't enough to build a ship yet. Yet. And the second yet is um, um, it is in capital. Yeah. We're just, very, we're just a very optimistic fandom, okay? Yes. <laughs> oh, but they have a relationship. They care about each other. He's helping her with the chow case. She said thank you. He praised her ability to be a detective and she smiled. Clearly, yeah. At least one plank. <laughs> yeah they're definitely going somewhere I mean it's it's not gonna happen quickly but you could see it like developing and beautiful yeah um I do have one question though did Maria ever bring up the fact that she was drugged and did they have any way to prove that she was drugged at the time because that's my question here Chow was a pretty wealthy person, I assume, because uh, it was said before in a previous episode that he would fund a lot of Thoral's projects. And so if the rich people like to keep the status quo, like we see Stefan wanting to keep the status quo among the wealthy, with Will marrying someone also of wealth, then it means that Maria was probably also pretty wealthy. And so if she was, even though they're divorced, if she was pretty wealthy, she probably could afford an attorney. And that would be a pretty good attorney because, you know, you're paying good money for them. And if you're being accused of murder, you want a good attorney to get you out of that. So what was her attorney doing during all of this? Did her attorney ever bring up how Maria was drugged? Did they ever realize she was drugged? Did Maria ever say she was drugged? Did they even pause to consider that the murder weapon could be planted there? And if she, and that, um, because like, you know, planting the murder weapon and getting someone's fingerprints on it is like the oldest trick in the book. <laughs> like, yeah, it what are these detectives thinking? Are they just going off that? Because there's so many contradictions to just using that one thing as evidence that someone murdered someone. Like, yeah, it is a, it is pretty serious but it is also a very you know generic thing that people use to frame other people <laughs> but it could also I mean, suggest, oh, sorry. Sorry, it could also suggest like the apds like in, in like being so incompetent because when you have people like herman and power who are like interested in you know like resolving the case as soon as possible then uh i guess the, like the pressure of solving the case might make them like just you know uh, go with the first like if there's enough evidence that suggests somebody is has committed the crime they would just go for that and like not try to dig deeper that just to wrap it up quickly I'm not sure hmm. I'm not sure how Herman would react to cases like this um, and how quickly he would want them over because the only time we've really seen him react this way is like uh, with the current um, with the current case of Sake's death and Lauren being a potential murderer because um I mean he thought everything about that was over with and now Lauren is back at it and he's probably just sick of it <laughs> but maybe back then he would have um been a little more careful but then again we don't know but then March would have been probably the detec- the detective around that time and so I'm like March sir what are you doing <laughs> and 
it kind of yeah it's really kind of um brings up their the police's incompetence to this yeah, i'm a little more um i guess pragmatic about it i just think that um it's a little just again story writing you know there's only a yeah. serve so much <laughs> can make it make sense you know and, and yeah. still get your plot going you know i but think then, it was oh. just a concession to to the plot well, I just realized this, but maybe Harvey had some meddling in that case. Yeah. And then again, I don't trust March. Why am I? <laughs> Why do I expect more from him? When uh-huh. I'm like ninety percent sure he's Phantom Side. <laughs> no. I'm so conflicted about him. But yeah, uh, it does also raise the question: if the Phantom Side is in the police, are they in the judicial system as well? Do they have? Do they have um, judges ruling in favor of Phantom Scythe members? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. A while back, um, people had a theory that the Phantom Scythe was um, corrupting the newspapers. The, that they were that they might be in the newspapers. Uh, later on, we learned that that's not true. That it's actually secretly the Royals instead, but. We don't need the. I guess I don't know when they're going to bring that up, but they have to at some point. <laughs> so, um, it's just corrupt people, corrupt groups, and corrupt parties all around. There is no good or bad people here. They're all or they're all bad, I guess. But they're all, I guess, you could argue, kind of good because the Phantom Scythe, even if they aren't really acting like it. Uh, what they claim to be their motive is kind of noble i mean it's very radical but you wonder you also understand where they're coming from no i have no tolerance for radical extremist groups sorry yeah in real life and in the and in the um and in the comic i think there's better ways to achieve your your goals than terrorism yeah definitely i like (laughs) i like their goal but i don't like um, how they're trying to reach that goal like I like that goal of trying to create a more just and equal society but you know the murders are kind of like very turning me off from this group <laughs> but then again when you see how bad the poor people are treated in our tallest I'm like you know maybe maybe violence is justified <laughs> But in a way, they have a lot of rotten people in their ranks. Like you have people yeah. like Tinsley who probably not have, don't give a damn about like you know uh, inequality or any of that. Like they're just generally bad people. So, mm-hmm. and we see Kieran say yeah. this. We see Kieran say this in episode sixty-five, where he's like, um, "We're trying to remove the bad people from the phantoms from the phantom scythe." Like, and and it's very obvious how Kieran he kind of agrees with what the Phantom Scythe is doing, which the Phantom Scythe is doing, which is dismantling the current system. But then again, there's also a ton of terrible people in there. And if they want to create a better system afterwards and not have a just as corrupt one, then they're going to have to get rid of the bad people too. So I think there may be a conflict in the future where Kieran is like where Kieran points out how there's actually still a lot of good people in the fandom scythe who are driven to it out of desperation and Lauren's gonna be like hopefully at that point Lauren's like 
Lauren recognizes how all the people in there aren't bad, but they might, she might still be a little bit on the edge. Like they're still terrorists. They're still part of a terrorist organization. And, you know, it's another moral dilemma because like these people were driven to violence out of desperation and necessity because they had no other options to support themselves. I'm not nearly as sympathetic. I'm, I'm, I, okay. I don't, sympathetic to, to some individuals who join maybe, but when an organization like that uses those means, I don't think I could ever be associated with them. And, um, and I don't have any high hopes for their utopian uh, plans for afterwards when this is the way they're behaving now. I don't think they'll be better than anything that they try to replace given their current behavior. And I think this is, you know, what her parents, Lauren's parents were, you know, recognized because they said, you know, we joined for, with idealism and now you're taking this too far and, and we don't want to be part of this. And that's why they were killed. So I don't have any particularly high hopes for the Phantom Sites vision of a wonderful society. Yeah, I don't, I'm not too sure of the world that they're going to create afterwards because they, they claim that they're against the current hierarchy, but they have a hierarchy of their own. But I think the reason the Phantom Scythe exists is why I'm so sympathetic to them because um, you don't, there aren't thousands of terrorists in Artalis, but there are thousands of people who have been spited by this system that was never designed to help them in the first place. And then the people who are supposed to be helping them aren't helping them. As we see, the cops in the poorer districts aren't as um, empathetic as the ones in the richer districts and precincts. And um, it does make you wonder, how would you act if you were in their shoes? Because most of the Phantom Scythe targets are actually rich people like um, Della Rocca, and Lady Grayson, they all lived in a generally wealthy area, as we see that Kim, uh, not Kim, uh, Kim, Will, and Lauren both lived near them. Will and Lauren are pretty rich, so it must have been like a relatively wealthy area. Um, Grayson had a maid, so these people have money, and they were working for the royals, and the royals are obviously like they don't care about the lower class, and so it's just these people the people that the phantom scythe are targeting are um they are working technically sort of against the lower class of the of the city by associating them with the royals and by helping out the royals and it kind of just if you were in their shoes how would you feel towards the upper class because that's main that's the main target of the phantom scythe and especially like allendale and the theater that we see um Schaefer try to bomb in the prologue. Those are both places that um, the upper class would probably frequent. Cause like, you know, theaters take for, t- theaters, shows take forever and, the, um, and tickets are expensive. So it's something that the upper class would have time to do, would have time to go to and um, have the funds to pay for. So it's not, so the lower class wouldn't be attending shows the way the upper class could. So that's why they would bomb the theater because the theater, um, is sort of a symbol of what the lower class has been spited out of, which is like, you know, leisure and luxury like that. And Allendale was targeted because it was, it was paid for, the construction was paid for by 
lower class taxes, even though the people in the lower class would never get to use the train station because it was located in areas that they didn't live in. So that's why those two places were targeted. That's why richer people are targeted by the Phantom Scythe. And weren't those richer people like um, spies? Weren't, wasn't that the reason yeah, they, they were, were also spies? Yeah, the ones that were assassinated, I think, were because they were either working with the, um, the royal family or they're uh, like spies in the PS, like they're working at PS. Mm-hmm. So it kind of just, it's really about the anger towards the upper class. And so like, if we were in um, the lower class's shoes, it's, we might feel that way too. We might be out for blood, like the lower classes, because the PS is basically like the perfect system or the perfect opportunity for the lower class. You get money from it. So you get income that you were that um, in a stable job, probably stable. And then you get back at the people who made it so you couldn't get a proper job and who made it who your kids couldn't go to school and who made it that and who built this system that would keep you and your family in poverty for generations. And the Phantom Scythe is this opportunity to put an end to all of this. And maybe that people think after so long being mistreated, so long being oppressed, that bloodshed is justified at this point. I mean, I think it's a complex issue. And um, yeah, <laughs> it's another, you know, I think that some drama. of the, you know, there's a little bit of misplaced blame at the wealthy class. And I think, you know, Lauren is an example of that because she's somebody who, right, she's just lived her life. Like she didn't ask to, you know, she just inherited the wealth that she was born into, right? And she is sheltered, right? And she doesn't know anything about how other people are treated. So I think she is maybe the perfect example of a little bit adding a little bit more complexity because just because you're born wealthy doesn't mean you're accountable for the sins of your forefathers or you know you live a certain light way of life and you don't think about other people maybe necessarily or you don't even know about how, how other people live. So I think that you know she may be the perfect example of understanding that it's mm-hmm. not you can't necessarily blame people for not knowing how the world around them operates or the suffering that other people go through. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, Lauren is unaware, which is, and technically so is the audience at first, uh, when we first enter our tallest um, as readers. But, and that's what's so amazing about it is that Lauren, we, Lauren is slowly learning about her place in the world and what she has done. And because even if she didn't know it, she was still part of, she was still a gear in this oppressive system as a police officer um and that's highlighted in 84 uh, not 84 68 why did I say 84 um <laughs> 84 doesn't even cover that what am I th- it's the eights oh. Jesus Christ okay 68 um okay so in 68 um she's it's highlighted about how the police can be oppressive even if Lauren and we didn't even really think about that that much. And Lauren didn't even realize, but she's slowly learning about it. And it's only through becoming aware of these issues that you can work to stop it. Um, and the lower class, like 
it's complicated, as you said, because there isn't much room for dialogue and conversation. Uh, the lower class is obviously silenced, as we find out, like uh, critical opinions against the monarchy are silenced. People who say critical things against the monarchy are arrested, as we find out in those Snapdragon pamphlets. And oh, so that was back then, because I do think, you know, Dakan does say there is that conversation that things have improved since then. It's, that's true. But then again, we also find out that the situation on the South Shore, so the four areas, has actually gotten worse. So it's it's hard to say, especially considering um, how much secrecy there is now. And um, there's no there's no more socialist groups anymore because social what's something that's incredibly devious and I kind of respect for how like how sort of genius it is like it's bad but it's it's smart um there will be no more socialist groups in our tallis for maybe the next as long as the phantom phantom size exists and as long as it's remembered there may be no more socialist groups in our tallis because socialism is now associated with the phantom scythe and therefore socialism is now associated with terrorism and so no one in Artalis is going to create a socialist group anymore and with constant villainizing of the PS from the royals part the royals have in turn basically created a perfect world for themselves where no one's going to be in opposition from them if they don't want to be deemed a terrorist Interesting. that's just it's fascinating to think about and just because like obviously um snapdragon from what we know snapdragon wasn't bad uh, they became the phantom side later on but as the time of the snapdragon pamphlet um they didn't seem to be like terrorists yet and yet um they were still deemed like radicals and um I don't really remember what they're called, but it's something with a negative connotation. So it's just a lot to think about. And again, going back to the dialogue, but the conversation between them, between the upper class and the lower class, the upper class is silencing the lower class and oppressing them. In turn, the lower class is rebelling against the upper class um, through violence because violence is now the only way they can be heard and snapdragon tried to be peaceful and in turn snapdragon got massacred massacred um what was that massacred did i miss something in the story yeah um orion and sons there was a massacre at the printing press of snapdragon which i'm pretty sure the royals did it because if the royals have a history of silencing the news and silencing the press and it would make sense for them to <laughs> silence a printing press for a socialist group because socialism is bad news for the world. They thrive off that sweet, sweet monarchy and capitalist society. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, in turn, the yeah. lower class rebels against the royals and upper class. And then to, in return to that, the royals villainize the lower class. And then that leads to more rebelling and it's just this endless cycle of going back and forth. And when the tension is so high and when the stakes are so high and when 
there's blood being shed and when everyone's just incredibly mad you don't really expect people to try and talk to the other side and so that's why Lauren doesn't really know about this um she doesn't really know about the lower class and that's why maybe the lower class doesn't really take into consideration that people might not be unaware but then again people like Stefan are probably big contributors big contributors to upholding this system as well so as maybe Will got older if he did take up like some of the wealth he might learn about the like class war and will might have the potential for becoming someone like Stefan but he probably won't I I have faith in um I have faith in will yes I don't um I don't think things are quite as simple I guess I think also because the people seem to really hate the phantom scythe and um you know they're definitely terrorized by them and that's like the meaning of terrorism right when you don't strike at people that are responsible for things you just randomly kill people right that's it strikes terror into, into the hearts of everybody so you know like the attacks on a theater or a train station are arbitrary right even if if it's directed at a class it's still these are random people who you don't know and you don't know anything about their life or their culpability or not i, I also don't think that you can castigate a whole group of people that easily. Um, I think this notion of class warfare is, it's definitely an accurate one. I don't, I don't sympathize with terrorist organizations, you know, what can I say? Like, I don't think that you can, I don't think that's the effective manner of addressing class injustices. So, but it's definitely a huge theme. And I think that your reasoning is, 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 um, is something that the people are experiencing, or at least some people. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with your viewpoint as well. Um, yeah, I don't sympathize with like the PS as a whole again. I just, I sympathize with the people who have been forced to terrorism out of necessity because there have been no other options for them. And that's the ironic part. People, like the American dream, people say like, if you work hard enough, you'll become wealthy and you'll reach, you'll do great things, but it's, it's a lie. It's, it, uh, this is probably very cynical of me to say, but it is kind of a lie because there's just so many barriers for different people. And depending who you are, it will be easier or it will be harder to reach certain points. And it will be harder to like gain wealth. It will be harder to collect wealth and accumulate wealth and just so many other things because there's so many just hurdles depending who you are and you know in our tallest um being poor if you have the most hurdles to get over to be successful because almost everyone above you is working against you i i don't i don't agree with that because i think that you know just living your life as a wealthy person or a middle class person you're not actively working against anyone you just inherited a lucky position you know you were mm-hmm. born lucky so i think you know maybe there are certain people bear some responsibility but i don't i think that the average joe schmo off the street was just born yeah. lives his life and doesn't do much right you know they they just do their own thing right um yeah but i'm very curious to see dakan's role because dakan seems to be the voice for the people within the monarchy and i'm curious to see what he's going to do and yeah and we all know right presumably as snapdragon passed 
So I'm just very curious to see what's going to happen with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with what you say that like, you know, the average person like Lauren, they're unaware of their actions and they're not really responsible for this whole class war. That would be a little bit insane to accuse them of that. But I'd say that in part, like even if you aren't aware of it, there are some people like even like Lauren, if they don't know it, who are still responsible for um, maintaining the system. We are all um, cogs and gears working in the system. And um, even if we are against it, there are ways that we in turn sort of end up helping it. And that's just the thing when, you know, rich people control society, they're going to want to keep their positions and they're going to make it so that it's really hard to go against them. And like you said, it's really hard to, it's also just, um, you don't, it's kind of impossible to sort of villainize an entire group. That's, I think you said that earlier, like a few minutes ago, but the way that I mentioned the royals are doing to the lower class. But then again, we have seen instances like those in history when entire groups have been villainized. It maybe not, maybe not to everyone, but there definitely like have been groups against different groups. And there's so many different examples I could list that um, we'd be here for hours. But uh, yeah, that's sort of my take on it. There are people in the Phantom Scythe who it's just a lot of tragedy and desperation, I think. And the Phantom Scythe is just a beaming light to them. Oh, oh, some, oh, that's what I was forgetting. Uh, you said how, you said something about um, how we see the Phantom Scythe. It's a bad thing. And yeah, it is a bad thing because, you know, people are dying. But then again, we see this story from Lauren's perspective, and she is the narrator, the, the biggest narrator of this. And so Lauren has lived her entire life in wealth. She's lived her entire life in the 11th precinct, probably, if her parents' house was there. And so we don't know what it is like for people who are in the lower class. We don't see the story from their perspective. The closest we've gotten is Kieran and Kieran is definitely sympathetic to the cause of like and so it is hard to say because Lauren sees the phantom scythe as a bad thing because um she's a cop and she thinks killing people is wrong and she's rich (laughs) so but it's the same necessarily true for the lower class do the lower class um, despise the Phantom Scythe as much as Lauren does? And that's a question that we just don't really know yet. Because again, the Phantom Scythe has offered the lower class opportunities that they wouldn't get normally. The Phantom Scythe has offered revenge, it has offered uh, income, it has offered the hope of a better future. And even though the Phantoms, we know as an audience that the Phantom Scythe probably won't live up to that last promise it's the hope of a better future is still better than what the lower class currently has. It's kind of like your average politician where they promise a lot of things, but once they get in power, they don't really, don't really do much. Right, this is, I mean, and I have a particular like, uh, you know, I'm thinking of every radical group throughout history that like had a revolution and they almost all ended up in a worse system than they had before. 
So I just don't have very high hopes for the Phantom Scythe either. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, we'll find out, right? That's uh, what we'll see in the rest of the episodes. It's definitely yeah. a major theme of the story. So I'm, I'm curious to see how they're going to, where they're going to take this. Oh yeah, definitely. It's probably very obvious, but it's one of my favorite topics in Purple Hyacinth. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I could talk for hours about it. I'm still holding on to the hope that like Karen and Lauren will revive Snapdragon or some kind of something modeled after Snapdragon. Mm -hmm. And hopefully like the Royals oh. will let them be the same. I'm, I'm assuming there will be something to do with Dakon as a former member of the Snapdragon plus as Lauren's godfather. I'm assuming there'll be some kind of the change will come from there, like maybe with Lauren and Dakon and Kieran together. But I'm I'm hoping for the the resolution of the story to be something like that. There is a change in society, mm -hmm. you know, maybe not like um, a Phantom Scythe <laughs> led mm -hmm. change, but a change, <laughs> or at um, least the beginning of change. Like you could see things turning, but they're not gonna go over it. I guess it's yeah. not the point of the story, but like you could see some something happening. If Snapdragon is to work, if Kieran and Lauren are to establish a new Snapdragon, then the current system is going to have to yeet itself because I would assume that history would repeat itself because Snapdragon started off with good intentions. Uh, like most people do, they have good intentions. But then uh, over the course of the years, it eventually became the Phantom Scythe from what we can probably assume was just the constant villainization and hatred um, from the public which was influenced by the royals because the royals again have control over the press so people are pushed to extremism after being oppressed and after being silenced and snapdragon tried to be peaceful they tried to be civil and they had they listed things that they wanted that were you know justified for them to ask for like health care schooling you know proper housing and stuff like that and eventually when the system proved to um still not care about them they decided enough was enough and that's when they became the phantom scythe because they were silenced they they tried it the peaceful way um they they were pacifists they they tried to be good people and then when being good didn't work out for them because of the systems in place uh, constantly silencing and villainizing them the only way for them to be really heard was to turn to violence. It also didn't affect much either. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, definitely a very good um, analysis and I think very true to life. So I want to kind of wrap up because it's late, yeah. <laughs> but we're definitely going to be seeing yeah, this whole this whole discussion is gonna, is a major theme of Purple Highs, and I'm, I'm curious to see how it'll be discussed and resolved. Yeah, it was a very fun conversation. I love this topic so much. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, both of you, for coming on and for sharing your insights and talks, and it was great as usual. Thank, thank you, you so for much having for having us. Yeah, it's always a delight joining you. It's so fun. Awesome, great. I'm glad. Thank you so much. Have a great night and I'll see you, you all another time. Bye. 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 Thank you to my current patrons, Susie, Lady Liberus, Mary, Alley Cat, 
Chelsea, Lily, Jenny, Haley, One and Only Taco, Elizabeth, Maria, Molly, Veronica, Emily, Emily, and Joe Rochelle. It is very, very much appreciated.